The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Greetings, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Terrifying Lies Podcast, where idyllic towns transubstantiate into terrifying nightmares under the cloak of night. Just a fair warning, today's episode is part two of a three-part series. If you haven't heard part one, I encourage you to go back and listen. Otherwise, you might become a bit addled. It's time to delve into the heart-pounding second part of the hypnotic nightmare tale, Evil Exhumed. In this unconventional narrative, I write in first-person perspective, akin to a choose-your-own-adventure book, in an attempt to thrust you directly into nightmarish depths. Part one revealed that you, a small-town cop, found yourself facing the aftermath of the execution of death row inmate Leon Mitchell. But Leon, in his wickedness, defies the very concept of death. He's returned, accompanied by ghastly allies from beyond the grave. Your duty is clear. Protect your town from this malevolent resurgence. Find a quiet place where you can close your eyes and listen. Brace yourself and prepare for a journey to test your courage and grip on sanity itself. Part 2 of Evil Exhumed will further immerse you into the hypnotic abyss. Be warned, survival remains uncertain. I now give you Evil Exhumed Part 2 of 2, written and performed by me, Craig Nibo. Greaves pushes himself up to a sitting position and stares at you, the front of his body riddled with bullet holes and caked in blood. You can't stop us, he says with a strained gasp. He seems to be getting better, to be healing. That can't be, you say to Melvin. Some of us have locked ourselves away in one of the abandoned blocks. They are trying to get to us. If they do, they'll kill us all. Who's trying to get to you? Mitchell and the rest of Death Row. He's come back and he's changed them somehow. I'm telling you, they're not human and they're after blood. Something clatters on the other end of the call. People scream. You hear a thunk, probably the sound of Mel dropping his cell and running for it. You listen to the bedlam for a moment, but have to drop the call when Greaves gains enough strength to stand up. He comes at you, this time without so much speed probably still groggy from being shot eight or nine times. You aim and touch off more rounds, hitting him in the chest and the face. Greaves dances backwards, pinwheeling away in a barrage of bullets. He collapses in the corner of the front room. You don't intend to wait for him to get up again. You run to your cruiser, jump inside, and punch it. You want to make as much distance between you and Earl's place as possible. As you patch out onto the two-lane highway that leads back to town, you notice an orange glow coming from the direction of Sandalwood Penitentiary. You look up the road and see that the whole place is on fire. The flames cast a sick yellow illumination into the night. For a moment, you debate cranking your wheel around and heading up to the penitentiary. But the prison isn't your responsibility. You're sworn to protect and serve the people of Brightland, your little hamlet of a community. 
you turn toward town and screech out onto the highway at 20 miles per hour better than the speed limit. When you reach the outskirts of town, you see that you aren't the only one who's noticed the blaze coming from the prison. People living on the fringe of the city line stand on their lawns, looking toward the orange light, which forms a hot line along the horizon. You slow your cruiser and pick up your radio handset. You switch the cruiser to PA mode and speak through the speaker mounted under the hood. Please go into your homes and lock the doors, you warn. To your chagrin, those gathered on their front lawns ignore you. You stop your cruiser and get out. You know you don't have time for this, but you have to see to the safety of the people of your little community. Listen up, everyone, you shout. Heads turn from the blaze toward you. They're finally paying attention. I need you all to go into your homes and lock your doors. I'm not sure what's going on, but there's been a prison break at Sandalwood. I need you to stay off the streets for your own safety. You're relieved when you see the smattering of spectators heed your warning and head into their homes. You jump back into your cruiser and raise Margo at dispatch. Margo, are you there? I'm here, she says. Sounds like hell has come to Brightland. I'm getting calls from everywhere. Can you tell me what's going on? It's some kind of prison break, but it's different somehow. It's like the inmates... You pause for a moment almost unwilling to believe the words you're about to say. Can't die. How is that? Margo asks. All of the alarm bells at dispatch must be ringing, you think, or Margo would not be so informal over the airwaves. Have you raised Bruno? You ask. Something catches your eye up the road. Shrieks of orange as if something is moving along the zipper line at lightning speed. Before you're able to fully register what you're seeing, three inmates appear in the middle of the road, dressed in orange jumpsuits. Only you know that they didn't materialize there. They ran so quickly that you only registered them as smears on their approach. The Terrifying Lies podcast will return after this short commercial break. Welcome back to the Terrifying Lies podcast. All three of the inmates stare at you. You don't know the inmate on the right, but on the left stands Shiloh Greaves, his chest still full of bullet holes. Your blood cools as you recognize the man in the center of the trio, their probable leader, none other than Leon Mitchell. You'd know that face anywhere. You've seen it on television hundreds of times over the course of his trial and execution. Leon's prison uniform is far from clean. Mud and blood coats him from head to toe, giving him an earthly, monstrous manifestation. He points at you and smiles. You start your cruiser and push the accelerator to the floor. Your police car patches away. If you can get Leon and his inmate cronies to follow you, at least they won't molest the people you've just told to go into their houses and lock their doors. I've raised Bruno, Margot says. I've also been on the horn with County. They've dispatched five cruisers. Where do you want them? Five cruisers isn't enough, you shout into the handset. You glance in the rearview mirror. A chill rattles your spine as you see Leon Mitchell and the two inmate henchmen running behind you. They're keeping up with your cruiser. You push it even harder. To your relief, you find that they can only maintain that inhumanly fast running speed for limited bursts. They fall behind as you rocket toward the center of town. Tell them to meet me in front of Bixby's, you say. 
trying as hard as you can to keep the fear out of your voice. Margot acknowledges your request and goes off the waves. You don't know how you're going to handle this threat. You were taught, like any youngster, to not believe in monsters. And yet, here they are. Only these monsters represent the worst of the worst, inmates from death row, now somehow the recipients of supernatural capabilities. You see Bixby's Tavern ahead. You picked it as a meeting point due to its position directly in the center of town and due to its position across from a wide parking strip the city planners installed in the center of Main Street. Bixby's is as good a place as any to take a stand against... Against what? Demons? Vampires? You can hardly form the words, let alone acknowledge their presence. You pull your cruiser around and stop in the middle of the centerline parking strip with your headlights aimed back toward the orange glow coming from the prison in the distance. You gather what weapons you have, a service pistol and a pair of shotguns, one from the trunk, the other mounted on a catch between the two front seats. You lay the shotguns on the driver's seat of the cruiser and crouch down behind the open door, aiming through the V between the door and the body of the car. After a few tense minutes, the relieving red and blue glow of rotating top lights approaches from behind you. You crane around and spot six more police cars, five from county, one driven by Bruno Sheridan, your deputy. You direct the police cars into an improvised echelon formation, aiming up the street. Circle the wagons, you think to yourself. The enemy is on the warpath. As the cars jockey into position, you notice a half dozen people staggering out of Bixby's Tavern. There's Abel Shaw, he picked up no less than six times for assault and battery. There's Sharon Horn, who usually goes home with any man willing to buy her a drink. There's Rhonda Simmons, whose husband just left her for a younger model. You always thought Rhonda could do better than that SOB. Josh and Joel Starkey come out of the bar, a pair of brothers who always have some new scheme to make millions. You remember the podunk car dealership they tried and failed to run a couple of years ago. Finally, Lyle Langevin staggers out of the joint, a baseball bat in his tattooed hand. Lyle works as the head bouncer at Bixby's. You know, firsthand, after arresting several disorderly patrons thrown out by Lyle, that he can handle his own in a fight. As the six barflies stagger out of the joint, it's clear to you that none of them are in any state of mind to run up against what you know is coming to downtown Brightland. Get back inside, you shout. They ignore you. Joel Starkey even raises a glass of beer toward you and smiles. You swear under your breath and continue directing the smattering of police cars into formation. After they are all parked, the officers inside them get out and come to you, their eyes darting toward the glow on the horizon as they trot to where you stand. Listen, you say as they gather around. I don't know exactly what's going on. It's some kind of a breakout. But there's something different about these escapees. You swallow hard. You hope they will believe you, outlandish as you know your explanation will sound. I met up with one of them earlier up at Earl Jakes's place. I pumped at least ten rounds into him and he still kept coming. PCP? One of the county officers asks. It was more than PCP. I'm not sure what's fueling these guys, but you have to treat them like they're rhinos. They will just keep... Bang! Someone touched off a shot. You and the other officers all duck in unison at the report. You glance over at Bixby's. 
Lyle Langevin has brought something more than a baseball bat to the party. You spot a revolver in his hand, probably a pawn shop midnight special. The other barflies hold their hands over their ears. The unmuffled snub-nosed shot must have blasted out their eardrums. Drop the gun, you shout at Lyle. He ignores you and levels his weapon up the street in the direction from which you came into town. Bang, bang! He squeezes off two more rounds. You hear Bruno, your deputy, utter something just north of a moan under his breath. His eyes trained on something up the street. You follow his field of vision and spot the three inmates you encountered on the two-lane highway just off from Earl Jakes' place. There, standing in the middle, is Leon Mitchell, his two cronies on his wings. More inmates have joined his posse, at least seven from your quick count. Spread out and take him down, you shout. The phalanx of officers raise their weapons and peel away. On your knees, one of the county officers shouts as he sidesteps away from you toward his police cruiser. The inmates around Leon Mitchell advance. Mitchell puts up his hands. They stop. You notice that each of the inmates have something in common. Their faces are washed in blood, particularly around their mouths. Red ichor runs down their chins and necks and stains the chests of their orange jumpsuits with slick crimson gore. The officers move to their police cruisers, taking cover behind their vehicles. Mitchell watches them scatter. His mouth peels into a wide grin, his blood-stained teeth glimmering through the blood clotted around his mouth. Oh, I don't think it will be us on our knees tonight, Mitchell says. He takes a couple of steps forward, his body glowing under the influence of cruiser headlights. Rotating top lights dance in blue and red on his jumpsuit. I'll bet you're just wondering how it is that I got out. You hook up one of your shotguns from the driver's seat and level it at Mitchell, taking cover behind the car's open door. Leon Mitchell holds his arms up into the lemon-colored glow of the police cruiser headlights. Much of the flesh on his fists has been torn away, leaving almost skeletal remains of his hands and forearms. You notice a crop of new growth around his wrists. He's rapidly healing, but not instantaneously. You remember Shiloh Greaves, how you gunned him down back at Earl Jakes' place. Although Greaves now stands in front of you, one of Mitchell's soiree, you had been able to temporarily incapacitate him. Maybe with enough firepower, Leon Mitchell can be stopped. Mitchell snaps his fingertips together. They click as the tips of his claw-like bones make contact, sounding like a set of castanets. It's not a problem, though. He says as he ventures forward a few more steps. In an hour or two, I'll be as good as new. This has been Evil Exhumed, Part 2 of 2. Written and performed by Craig Nibo. Evil Exhumed is part of a larger project that I produced several years ago. My goal? Terrify my friends by hypnotizing them and guiding them through a designer nightmare. For today's song, I give you another brand new original. Since Leon Mitchell died, or should I say, 
undyed. In the electric chair, I offer a dark little tune called Lightning Rider. In a cold, dark cell, he sits alone. Never thought about the consequence of things he's done. He reflects on regrets and the value of laments and the benefit of dark messages unsent. To telltale dearth of understanding of the cause and effect of black malandering with a weapon of choice and a pocket of coin. Armageddon of singular bad expanding. Getting it, getting it, getting it done. On the run when the thunder gun's undone. It's a one-nighter night, fighter nightmare. Boom, when they're hitting the hard deck, all in the room. And the blister's bad when the sun makes a madman's mind out of time. So he's slugging in the grimy ways of the crime of the desperate climb. To the lightning rider, the legitimate primal Lightning rider friends, we draw near the end of another episode of the Terrifying Lies podcast. I express my deepest gratitude to each of you. Your unwavering support and dedication hold immense significance for me. The expeditions we embark on with every episode feel like a collective escape from the mundane, a vacation from the ordinary. The sense of community that's grown around this podcast is a remarkable testament to the curiosity and the shared love for the unknown that binds us all together. I'm grateful that you elected me to be your host. Until next time, I bid you sweet dreams, or should I say, sweet nightmares. This has been the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Please, come again. You're welcome here. (laughs) 